0: What's going on, guys? Welcome back to another episode of the No Rain, No Rainbows podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. Shout out to my executive producer, Andre Suttles, Suttles Solution Media, helping to make this podcast possible. As always, we have a good one for you today. I'm excited to introduce founder of CXN Advisory, writer, co-founder of F3, journalist, and of course, someone who's becoming a good friend of mine, Tim Wettmeyer, on the call. Tim, how are you doing today? I'm good. How about you, Ted? I'm doing excellent. It's a sunny day, starting to get warmer here in South Carolina. So spending more time outside. So I always love making sure as we are speaking of South Carolina, I know we're not too far away. You being in North Carolina, we have a lot of listeners in both states as well as across the country and shout out to our listeners in Germany, the Philippines and all that. They might not have heard of you before or even might not have heard of F3. So I, I love making sure that our guest has a chance to introduce themselves, give their quick resume before we hop in.
1: Sure, sure. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I won't give you my full resume, because it gets a little little long after a while. But if you're on the roads in, uh, in North or South Carolina, you've probably seen little white stickers, circular stickers on cars that say, uh, it's, it's got a black circle and got a stenciled F3 in the middle of the circle. And that's a men's workout movement that my friend Dave Redding and I co founded back in 2011 here in Charlotte, and then kind of, you know, against all, all of our expectations, turned into kind of a a nationwide movement and got out into the Carolinas and then sort of spread like wildfire from there. And we're in, uh, I think more than 40 States now. And actually you mentioned Germany. I think we've got a workout going in Germany. Some guys I think just started F3 in Kenya. And so it's just kind of taken off and uh, taken on a life of its own, but that's been a real kind of missional missional thing for me over the last decade. We just marked our 10th anniversary. And then that's really, kind of a passion project for me. Uh, professionally, what I do is, I've. you mentioned I was a reporter, mainly with the Associated Press for about 15 years at the beginning of my career, done some other stuff in business development. But these days, I run a, a consulting firm called CXN Advisory. And I work with founders and CEOs of everything from kind of startup through growth stage to mature businesses on kind of leadership and coaching, as well as not just kind of mindset stuff and coaching stuff but also like execution you know so yeah i'm happy to let people sit on the couch and kind of talk through stuff but my natural inclination is always toward execution and so i tend to kind of push my clients of like okay well that's a great idea but let's go ahead and do something about it so yeah i know you and i have had those kind of conversations about modern man and, and what you're doing with that and mm-hmm. so huge shout out to you for that for what you built down there in, in greenville and, and the growth of that audience and uh it's so, you know, you and I got introduced because of the close alignment between what what we do with F3 and what you're doing with modern man. So oh yeah, just absolute hats off to you for that. No, I appreciate that, Tim. And it is quite the resume and he was right. He
0: only gave you about 25% of it. So (laughs) (laughs) I love the whole story of everything you do because knowing your story and how everything comes together, it actually all fits, which I kind of find with a lot of our guests. And I like to kind of pull the story back and come from the beginning because it's easy for folks to see the finish line and see where we are currently, but there are so many building blocks that really start with that. And I kind of want to start, I guess, from when you were young, growing up and going through school, one thing you didn't mention about being a Harvard grad, which I think is something a lot of folks sometimes lead with. But how did your early years lead you into, first of all, performing well enough in school to go for something like an Ivy league school, like Harvard.
1: I got to give all that credit really goes to my mom. She raised me and my brother um, pretty much by herself. Our, our dad left when I was, uh, first time he left was when I was like three and a half and left for good when I was five. And she was out in California. She'd grown up in Boston actually. And, and my grandfather was, had graduated from Harvard and she kind of you know came from that milieu. And But she really wanted to stay in in California after my dad left. And so she went back to school, got a master's degree, became a land use planner, worked for several public agencies, including the county of Sonoma, which is where I grew up north of San Francisco, and raised us by ourselves. And not always with a a ton of support from my dad, who was down in Southern California. And she was just adamant from day one, it it was always about school. And sometimes, you know, kind of to an extreme, I mean, you know, she was... Working full time and really didn't have a lot of chance to support me and my brother and all the youth sports that we wanted to do and stuff like that. So we didn't, you know, we didn't have a lot of those opportunities, and that, you know, that became a source of, you know, probably adolescent resentment on my part. But she was really clear about, you know, that doing well in school was really important, and I really, uh, both my brother and I, really kind of bought into that. And so, you know, to the point that. After I was, uh, I guess I got through sixth grade and she didn't, she really didn't like the look of the public schools in Santa Rosa as I got into junior high. And so she pulled me out and started sending me to a private school in Marin County, which is just south of Sonoma. And then ultimately to high school in San Francisco. So I would literally get up at five in the morning and ride a Golden Gate transit bus into San Francisco every morning to go to uh, university high school there. And that really was what it it would have been a lot more difficult for me to get into Harvard had I been coming out of the public schools uh, in Sonoma County versus with what I'd been able to experience at university high school. So um, it's really all to her.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's something we have in common. I, I like asking that question because I know if it were up to me at a young age, my parents being very heavily focused on education over the athletics and the sports, if I were making my own choices at that young age, I probably wouldn't have made the scholastic choices that my parents were making. They were yeah. more focused on putting me in private school as well, making sure my education was top-notch that they could afford in order for me to have these opportunities. And I know not everybody has that outward... So just a reason I asked that question, because it is important to see how that work ethic plays out. Stepping into Harvard and moving into college now and into that experience, did you have any imposter syndrome through that? Or were you able to kind of get in there and kind of keep the pace as you went through?
1: Well, I mean, most people who who know me, I, I'm not. I've often been guilty of, of thinking I'm the smartest guy in every room. So I didn't have any imposter syndrome, in in that sense, I think you know what I'll be honest about was, I, you know, there was a lot of sort of class stuff going on. I'd gone to, you know, I was this kid from Santa Rosa, which at the time was really kind of a farm town, and you know, everybody's like, oh, you must be a hick from Santa Rosa. And I was going to school in San Francisco with a, you know bunch of very well off kids. And there were sort of class issues around that that made, you know, made me feel like I didn't fit in very well socially and didn't always make me as comfortable as I could have been. And I'd say that that kind of carried over to Harvard. And it, it took me a while to kind of find my niche and settle in with my group. And uh, eventually that came together. The irony was that I ended up, you know, there were four of us who lived together for the last three years. And One of them was a guy who I had actually gone to high school with, who was one of my best friends from high school and grade school and and remains, you know, one of my best friends to this day. But finding and and settling into that niche was a little bit, you know, it was a little rocky. And I was, you know, not the most mature kid around all that stuff also, so...
0: I think many of us, as we reflect back to those days, would agree that we weren't the most mature versions of ourselves also. <laughs> so I'm interested to know, because when you mentioned finding your niche, this is also about the time I know in college where you started rowing crew. Yeah. Was there any correlation between finding your niche and taking on this extracurricular activity?
1: Yeah. I mean, I, well, so look, I mean, you know, I mentioned my mom, you know, was not able to support us in being kind of particularly athletic as uh, as kids and particularly true, it's, it's less true as I've had kids of my own today, but certainly growing up as a boy in the 1970s and the 1980s, if you weren't a jock, you know, everybody's seen all those 80s high school movies, then you were a nerd, right? Yeah. Um, and you were, you know, there was a lot of social stigma kind of uh, associated with that, that I frankly, as my boys have come up, and, and I've got one in college and one in ninth grade, it's just, that's changed a lot, right? But Certainly in those days. So I had never played a sport. I'd never been a particularly been a part of any team and. One of the great things about the crew program at Harvard, particularly in those days was, yeah, you had some guys who had rode in uh, in prep school, you know, particularly the guys who had gone to, to boarding schools in the East, but they had sort of an open call to all the freshmen. And you, know, you basically would show up in a meeting at the freshman union in the second week of September, and they'd hand out t-shirts and ours, you know, it's a crimson t-shirt and says crew 92 in big letters on the back. And they'd be like, yeah, come on out for crew. And I was like, Yeah, sure. I'll do that. So I, I went out and, you know, there were 150 of us at first, and then it just kind of winnows down over the course of the fall. And and then you get into winter training and you're not on the water and you got to sit there and row on the ergometer all the time. And it's not that much fun, but I became a part of this team. and, And, you know, I was one of the, you know, 18 or 20 guys who made it all the way through that to the spring and ended up in a boat in the spring and, you know, stayed over spring break and did two a days. And, That was the first time I'd ever been part of a team in my life. And I tell this story a lot of times to F3 audiences about, you know, being in the tanks in that winter with our head coach who was a guy, or the the freshman coach was a guy named Fred Borschelt. And Fred had rode on a a silver medal winning crew at the 84 Olympics in Los Angeles. And I'm in the tanks with Fred and we're working on my technique. I think it was it was my catch. My catch was always the problem in my stroke. And he stops at one point and he says to me, He's the you do realize you're a natural athlete, right? And I kind of did this. I'm like, you're not talking to me, are you? Cause I, that was not in my conception of myself in any way. And that experience, like, I was like, oh, well, I guess he's talking to me. Uh, maybe, I don't know, maybe I am, but like, that was the first time, you know, that was my first coach. That was my first experience ever really being coached. And that's a moment i'll always you know i always take with me and i carried with me going forward and i i wouldn't say you know i ended up rowing for two years i was kind of a tweener between a heavyweight and a lightweight at the time i ended up being a natural heavyweight as i got older so it was really hard for me to find a place as a varsity rower but the confidence i gained from being a part of that team and being part of the program for a couple of years was uh just invaluable, invaluable right. to me. And, and really, I think to your point, helped me kind of settle down. It's okay, you're here and you're a part of this this university just like like everybody else and you're good to go.
0: Yeah, and there's so many things I'd love to unpack in that story. But one of which, <laughs> obviously the point of the question was, I know a lot of people who find a hard time locating their niche or, or where they belong. I always encourage them to join a community around something they enjoy or something they like. Yeah. Now in your particular experience, I love that you mentioned uh, forgive me. I don't know the exact number. You said about 129 guys or 129 yeah, people. It was like 100, 120, 130
1: came out to get that t-shirt. Yeah. So,
0: so what, what stands out to me is, and quick question, did they cut anyone at all or was it all nope. voluntary?
1: Nope. It's all, yeah. I mean, and that, that was a hilarious thing because you'd, you walk, all the freshmen at Harvard live in Harvard Yard, which is the original oldest part of the campus. You all live in dorms and you go to parties freshman week and you'd see all these other dudes who were wearing the crew 92 shorts like, Oh, I'm a badass. I'm going out for crew or whatever. And then as the fall goes on, like you go and you look at the practice schedule, they used to post the practice schedule in the window of a cigar shop that was on Harvard square. So you would know what time you had to be down at the boathouse and go and look. And like, the list was getting shorter and shorter and shorter because guys are dropping and they're not coming out and they're not, you know, maybe they're getting overwhelmed by academics or maybe they get distracted by other stuff or whatever. But yeah, I mean, that's, yeah it wasn't as much fun.. Cruise. yeah, yeah, exactly. Cruise I mean, it's yeah. not
0: an easy sport. I've rode before and your whole body hurts. it's a <laughs> yeah. it's a strenuous event and I think I mean there's a lot of things that can cause somebody to maybe step away. Sure. but it's interesting to have that duality where for example, my high school team, our football team JV was the hardest team to make because freshmen didn't do cuts and they yeah. had two freshmen teams because everybody wanted to come out for football and everybody stayed. They had to thin the herd JV year. And that was the hardest one they make. But the fact that there were no cuts and you have like a hundred people bow out on their own accord, it yeah. kind of just shows to your credit, the really the difficultness of what you've done.
1: Well, and I think at the end of that process, you sort of look around at the other guys and you're like, I know what it took for me to get here, and I know what it must have taken for you to get here, and we chose to be here, you know, and there's some power in that, right? Mm-hmm. There's not, There wasn't any expectation coming in that, you know, you weren't a recruited athlete in any way, you weren't obligated, there are no athletic scholarships in the Ivy League anyway, and it's just like, we're here because we choose to be here, and that ultimately, and I, this relates to, and I'm thinking about it for the first time, a lot of the power of F3 is really, and you know, we do a lot of what we call CSALP events, which are, stands for completely stupid and utterly pointless events. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the power in those is like, you're in a van, you know, in the middle of the Blue Ridge Relay at two in the morning. And you're looking around at these other, you know, five other guys in the van with you and you're like, oh, we're here because we're idiots. And, but because we chose to be here, we choose to be here with each other. And there's you know, there's a certain love that comes out of that. It's not romantic love, but it is that friendship. It's that fellowship love. Um, yeah. It's that brotherly, that brotherly love. So.
0: Oh, yeah. It's camaraderie for sure. I mean, I always say there's nothing that will bond two people like going through some ish together. <laughs> <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> there's a story, too. Speaking of going through it, because a lot of the undertones of, of this interview and what I'm getting is, A lot of persistence, even in in our audio before here, when we were talking for the Patreon page, talked about the endurance and your internal ability to kind of that cadence and whatnot. So I get a hint of a lot of persistence from you where, you know, Tim's not someone who quits easy. That pertains to a story that you shared with me, and I don't want to tell it because I'll probably butcher it. You tell it better than I do in terms of the four legs of a race that you learned in crew and how that pertains to life and what a lot of us sometimes might be going through when we're in the thick of a storm.
1: Sure. Sure. So, yeah, so this is go back to, we, we go back to Fred again, who, you know, was, he, uh, you know, very influential guy in my life. So Fred, our, our freshman crew coach, I think this is the same thing. I think he literally, this is right before racing season started in the spring. And a crew race is kind of 2,000 meters long, at least a sprint race. In the fall, they, there is a different format called head racing where it's more like a 5K long race, but you don't race the boats head to head in that situation. The boats go up the river one by one and they compete on time. So you're never kind of right next to each other. But that kind of classic, you know, think about the Olympics and the, the eight man crew races those are competed on a 2000 meter course and, and the boats are all next to each other head to head. So we came into that racing season in the spring and I think Fred sat us down at some point, he might've passed a silver medal around to kind of get us fired up and let us see what an Olympic medal looks like. But what he said to us was, you know, the race is 2000 meters long and here's how you have to think about it. You got to divide it into 500 meter segments. So, you know, there are four or 500 meter segments in the race. When we start off, you're going to come off the line and you're going to be going, you know, probably at a close to a 40 strokes per minute rate, which is a very high rate. And you do that straight off the line to try to build up momentum in the boat and and get you because you're starting from a standing stop and you got to get up to full speed. And that first 500 meters, you guys are going to be coming off the line. It's going to fly by. You're not even going to think about it. Second 500 meters, the coxswain, who's the little guy who sits in the front of a boat and kind of calls out the cadence and tries to keep everybody together, he's going to settle you down into your race cadence, which is usually about 36 strokes per minute. And you're going to kind of settle into that. And you're going to get try to get some swing in the boat, get everybody rowing together. That's going to go by just fine. You're going to be fine. And then he said, I'm going to skip ahead that fourth 500 that's going to be balls to the wall, right? That's going to be dead out for the finish. At that point, you're going to be exhausted, but you're going to know the finish is really close. And the coxswain's going to be telling you, you know, just 30 more strokes, just 20 more strokes, and you're going to, you know, like the horse that smells the barn, you know, you're going to get through that. And he said, where the race is won and lost is in the third 500. And that is when, you know, you get to that midpoint of the race and beyond that. And the start at that point is a distant memory. You're starting to get lactic acid buildup in your muscles. You're going into anaerobic. You can't, you know, you can't breathe and bring in enough air to keep up with your body's demands. The finish is still way too far to even start thinking about. And it's your mental toughness in that third 500 and your ability to keep pushing through that, that will win or, or lose the race for the boat. And Obviously, the fact that I can recite that from memory 30 years later, more than 30 years later, is a testament to the impact it had on me. But what I found as I went through life was, I mean, it's absolutely true in a crew race, but it's actually true in in life in general. And, you know, we talked about my marathoning. It's true in a marathon it's true, go out and run a mile at the track, you know, go run four laps around a regulation track and tell me that that third lap around isn't the hardest one, isn't the the mentally toughest one. And the lesson I learned after we founded F3, which we can, you know, we can talk about, but it's basically a workout group for men, was I was 40 years old when we started F3. And had a bunch of guys who were roughly my age who were out there with us that first year. And we were going around the circle of trust one day. And one of the things you do at the end of the workout, everybody says their name and their age and their F3 nickname. And we're going around the circle one day and it seemed like every guy was 43, 43, 43, 43. And it suddenly dawned on me that all these guys were in guys who had hit the third 500 of their lives. And that I had had as well, if you think about, you know, typical life is about 80 years long. And once you hit 40, you're in that third 500 there. And F3 was having this really strong impact on these guys who were kind of stuck out there in the middle of the race, right? And the start was a distant memory, right? We've forgotten what it was like to be kids and to have all that energy. We've gotten settled into the race pace of our lives. We kind of know what our careers are. Many of us are married and have kids. Finish line is still a long way away. And how do you kind of keep up Uh, momentum in that third 500 of your life. And one of the things that we found was that bringing men together in this setting of working out together actually really helps them kind of get in cadence with one another and kind of maintain that momentum. So that third 500 story became something that I told routinely to, to a story that I would tell routinely to F3 audiences, because it really is about Getting guys together and helping them understand that they need to accelerate through that third five hundred, that it's not enough to just drift out there by yourself. You need to have some other man alongside you.
0: Yeah. So and I love the the depiction of that because it is so true. And you could see it kind of the proof in the pudding when you mentioned the ages of the cadence of everyone that comes around. Speaking now specifically to F3 and the success that it's seen. And of course, talking about that third 500, the importance of bringing men together for this physical challenge, what is it you found that keep men coming back that really kind of pulls men in the first place? And what do you see that they walk away with?
1: Yeah. So look, the, the basic format of an F3 workout is you show up and you, you I know you've been to one, you know, it's, it's on a Saturday, you might show up at 7am, but if it's a weekday, you're going to show up at like 515 or 530 mm-hmm. at a parking lot or a park or on a school campus. And there's going to be a bunch of guys standing around and, you know, right at the stroke of 530, one of them is going to look at his watch and say, follow me. And you actually, a lot of times don't know who that's going to be and you don't know what he's going to do, but, your job for the next 45 minutes is follow this guy and do what he says. And he's a member, we we call the kind of group of guys, the PAX. He's a member of the PAX, just like you. He's not being paid to do this. He's not holding the clipboard and telling you what to do. He's leading from the front and he does everything that he tells you to do. And that it's basically 45 minutes of kind of boot camp style body weight exercises mixed in with running. And what we found about that was that guys would show up. And first of all, it was really easy to get them to come out because it's like, you know, I might meet you, Ted. And if I say, Hey, man, I got a really cool Bible study, men's Bible study at my church, why don't you come with me? Well, you might not be of the same faith that I am, you might not even, you know, even if we share faith, maybe you're a different denomination, maybe you already got a church you're comfortable with. But if I say, Hey, I go to this free workout, you know, why don't you come with me one of these days? You might you relatively likely to say, yeah. And if I really put the headlock on you and tell you, hey man, this could change your life. You I think you'd really enjoy this, then you know, maybe you'll really come versus getting the hard sell on the Bible study, which guys kind of sometimes blow up about. So our whole thing is that free workout is kind of a magnet, right? Hey, I go to this free workout, it's great. Why don't you come with me? And guys show up and they get their asses kicked the first time around, usually. Some guys show up and they're in great shape and they do the ass kicking. But, you know, most guys, it's it's a little bit of a shock to the system. But then you get to the end and I mentioned the circle of trust earlier and, you know, we kind of stand in a circle and we're going to give you a nickname. So would you get nicknamed? I was a rain man. Rain Man. That's a pretty good nickname. They didn't want to so, give it to me. They said it was too cool. <laughs> it is too cool. It is. Too, yeah. we Usually a lot of times the nicknames are much worse than that. So
0: yeah, I should clarify for everybody listening and especially the F3 guys, it's Rain Man, which really means it's raining men,
1: <laughs> but it was too <laughs> long. So
0: they just kept it at Rain Man. So
1: there we go. There we go. <laughs> yeah. So like, uh, so we're, we're going to give you a nickname, right? Which is, you know, it's a bunch of guys and that becomes a very tribal thing, right? You know, you're newly baptized in some way in this group and you still got your, your hospital name, which is the name they gave you when they when you were born, but we're going to give you our name for you. And that's going to be, and once you have that name, that's all the passport you need to go to any F3 workout anywhere in the world. You show up and you're like, yeah, I'm an F3 guy. I'm a member of the nation. And that, for whatever reason, with all that kind of ritual and stuff, guys that's sticky in some ways after guys have been through that a couple times and experienced it they're like oh all of a sudden it doesn't feel so bad to have to set the alarm for 4:45 or 5 a.m and get out of bed because i actually want to go because i've got this new group of friends that's out there in the gloom with me and that's you know in the gloom is a, a big f3 term you know everybody everybody signs their emails s y i t g which stands for see you in the gloom but you've got your group of guys and like i want to go because i know we're going to be on text or twitter later in the day and i want to know the inside jokes that everybody's telling or whatever and that that becomes the motivation that's kind of the glue that keeps you coming back yeah and then ultimately so that that fellowship which is the second f and f through this fitness fellowship and then the third f is What we call faith and is really just it's not a specific you know religious faith or anything like that it's just a belief in something outside yourself and that's where we talk about the dynamite and that's you get a guy into f3 and now he's fit and now he's got this group of friends and all of a sudden you see all these guys who are kind of picking their heads up and maybe they've been kind of doing the the sad clown shuffle for a few years but now all of a sudden they've dropped that 15 pounds they're feeling good about themselves and they're like I want to go do some stuff. I want to go change the world. I want to have an impact. And that's the dynamite. That's really kind of the the third key piece of it.
0: And that's what they walk away with pretty much is just that kind of changed life, the revitalized view of the world that they live in. And that's amazing going through the whole process because you mentioned kind of like that magnet, the glue and and the dynamite that really kind of causes that explosion into what F3 has become as someone who's gone through it. And I must say- kind of showing how the story fits when I was first asking about going into Harvard and, and you mentioned kind of the class kind of difference and finding your niche a little bit. And what a lot of people have a hard time with is getting in new environments and finding that niche. What I hear with F3 is you've kind of did away with that whole kind of slow transition. It's, I would put it this way, as someone who experienced it the first day, they say, Hey, they ask who you are. And one thing that happens during the workout is they have opportunities for participation along the way where the guy, the leader in this one was just like, Hey, count me down. And it's quiet for a couple seconds. And just yeah. instinctually, we want to fill that silence. And I'm not sure if it was intentional, but like after the first couple guys counted down, I mean, I kind of just felt like, Oh, I guess it's my turn. And I start counting down <laughs> and it's, I mean, you're not there for more than 10 minutes. You're participating in the progress of what's happening. So you automatically yep. feel part of the group before the workout's even done. That, and I was dying, and, and so were other people too, so.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, I mean, if you do the countdown yourself, that means you get to stretch it out for as long as you possibly need to get your breath back, right? That's why I did it. I was like, you yeah. know, you guys count a little fast in my book. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> I'll show exactly. you a real 10 count. Well, um, but you you touched on something there, which actually was critical in that the first year after we did the very first F3 workout on January 1st, 2011. And as we grew it, one of the things we saw very early on was that when you got, when the workouts, and this actually became part of the growth imperative was when the workouts got to a certain size, which in our view was, you know, over about kind of 18 to 20 guys. At that point, there's so many guys out there. It's actually kind of easy for guys to hide in the workout and not be recognized or kind of hang in the back or stay in the middle. And it actually became part of the way we, the whole philosophy and how we grew the organization was now, once you're regularly attracting kind of 25 people to a workout you got to divide that workout, you got to go plant a new one and give guys a new opportunity, because otherwise, guys are never going to have a chance to be heard, they're never going to have a chance to lead, they're never going to be recognized. And we call it addition by division, you know, you divide a 30 man workout in two, and all of a sudden, you end up with two man workouts, which then need to be divided themselves, because there's just this magic of if you put you know, six new guys out there on an island, they're going to attract some other guys and guys are going to come in and they're going to get to be heard and they're going to get to lead versus if I go show up at a 40 person workout tomorrow, I'm never going to lead. I'm never going to stand out in any way. I'm just going to be a face in the crowd. And one of the things you realize, and I talked about that sad clown shuffle yesterday is a ton of guys out there who are just kind of going through the motions of life and you know, have maybe never led anything in their adult lives. And All of a sudden you put them in a group and you say, I need you to do this. I need you to lead a workout next week. I need you to count us down from 10 right now. I need you to say a few words to close out the workout. And all of a sudden they're, you know, they're like a little bit like me with my group coach back in the fall of 1988. They're like, Oh me, you're calling on me. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'll do it. I'll do it. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's a real freeing thing for a lot of guys. So.
0: Almost like I think, (laughs) There's a quote about like greatness is, you know, we don't find out how great we are until we have an opportunity to step into it. And it's kind of charging someone and, you know, counting down from 10 might not sound like an inception of greatness, but that could just be the start of what leads to that person continuing to work out, which down the line becomes them leading a workout, which becomes them really leading a new life. For them, yeah. themselves, their family, which does become its own form of greatness. When you started F three, did you have any idea what it could become?
1: <laughs> I laugh because I get this all the time. There's no, we have these what are called convergence workouts, which are kind of on holidays or big anniversaries, and you'll get hundreds of guys who'll come together at a single location, and and not one of those goes by that some guy doesn't come up to me and say, "Did you ever imagine it would turn into this?" and for a long time, I was like, no, no, it's, you know, it's unbelievable, but, you know, so to say what you're expected to say, but actually, I mean, we kind of did. And so I, I stopped kind of telling that, that little white lie because Dave and I, when we started it, we had already been working out this way with another group here in Charlotte, a, a group of guys who work out in Freedom Park on Saturday mornings and, and still do to this day. And we'd been part of that group, which they call themselves the Campos, which is the Spanish word for fields. And there's a long story behind that, but the Campos guys had gotten, had grown their work out to a certain point. And the guy who started it had grown it to a certain point. It was actually about 25 or 30 guys. And I got in fairly early on, I was probably the 12th or 13th guy out there. And one of the things that happens is you go out and you get in shape and you talk about it and you start inviting other people out. And and when it got to that point of being kind of 25 guys, Jeff, the guy who was a leader, actually shut it down and said, you know, this is too many new guys. I don't want all these new guys coming in. And Dave and I had gotten to know each other through the workout and had become friends and routinely would have lunch in uptown Charlotte and talk about kind of what was going on with it. And we kind of looked at each other over lunch one day and we're like, this is crazy. Like, we need to get this in front of more guys. We can't shut this down. And that was really the impetus to go plant that other workout that we did on January 1st, 2011. So from day one, the vision was always get this mode of working out in front of as many guys as possible. And so we were very kind of mission driven in that Mm -hmm. regard. And so nothing in that sense, nothing about what has happened the last 10 plus years has actually surprised me because it worked in my life. I'm not that abnormal of a dude. Like there were some basic things that it was addressing in my life. It probably would do the same for a lot of other guys. And indeed it has. And so did I know it was going to be exactly this many states or this many guys? Well, no, not really. But I knew on January 1st, 2011, the mission was get this in front of as many guys as possible.
0: Yeah. And that mission continues today, which it's been great seeing it and even being a part of it, even seeing the guys since the workout in multiple areas around town and kind (laughs) of like, it's funny when, I mean, us as humans, we live our whole lives by a name, our hospital name, as you mentioned, but after a workout and someone gives you the name Rain Man, when you're in the middle of a donut shop, getting donuts and someone goes, Rain Man, you turn around. (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> <laughs> and your and your wife or girlfriend is like, oh God, not another F3 guy. <laughs> yeah. My fiance was standing right there, like, what? <laughs> She's never heard me call that before,
0: but now yeah. she has. Yeah. There's so many more questions I wish I could ask and so many other parts I wish I could unpack, but Tim, I appreciate you taking the time here for this podcast. I know a lot of our listeners, the guys watching that want to maybe experience one of these F3 workouts. What's the best way for them to reach out, find out if it's in their city and maybe be an inception to start one in theirs.
1: Yeah. So the www.f3nation.com is the the national website. And they got a, a map that we, I think you can plug your zip code in and find the nearest workout and, And then I think there's also, it's relatively easy to reach out, not, and if there isn't a workout in your area, kind of find out about how do I potentially start one?
0: Yeah. And I know you guys have literally made the trip to different cities to get them started and things like that. So that's amazing. And I really hope a lot of our listeners and and some folks take advantage of that. Tim, thank you again for being on, sharing your story and a little bit of the insights on the man behind co founding F3.
1: (laughs) Absolutely. Hey, I enjoyed it, Ted. And like I said, just a a ton of respect for kind of the parallel work you're doing with your Modern Man effort and, and what you're doing with the podcast here. So love what you're doing and happy to support you any way we can.
0: No, I appreciate that. Thank you so much. And I don't plug the Modern Man on this podcast enough. So shameless plug. Don't forget to check that out after. You check F3. And Tim, I'm going to run down some of the nuggets that you left along the way really quick as I close this episode out, just to make sure some of our listeners were able to pull that value from your story, finding your niche. My first question really focused on where the effort behind school came from, because either it's an external force that pushes us through education or maybe an internal force within us that wants us to remove ourselves from a situation, but wherever that might be, I've always found that the transition from high school into college, sometimes from grade school into high school, could be a jar for some folks, especially who are heavily focused in education as the next level increases, the difficultness increases as well. But finding your niche is something that's really important and not just finding your comfort, but your confidence. That was true for me. And as you could tell in Tim's story was for true for him as well. Finding our niche is something that happens when we get into a community of doing something we enjoy doing. We're here because we choose to mentioned what you enjoy doing. <laughs> Rowing crew is not fun. I've done it. Wrestling in high school was not fun. My high school wrestling team also did not cut. But all the guys who did wrestling were very tight-knit, bonded individuals because of what they went through because they simply were there. So pay close attention to those who choose to be there with you through hard times. And also in the race, the races won or lost in the third 500, that third quarter of the race. And it's true in so many different areas of our lives, building mental toughness is how we get through that. And as Tim was breaking down, We found that through physical fitness and for men who are going through that third quarter of their lives, make sure you reach out, find an F3 workout group in your area, find that community of guys bettering themselves and challenging each other and charging each other to lead. That's another thing I mentioned, charge people with the chance to be great. You'd be surprised what people are capable of if you just open up the door for them and give them an opportunity. And then finding that dynamite, the things that happen in our mind when we realize what we're capable of, it's all in your hands and I love seeing that trigger Just hit for folks. So, I hope some of you guys can experience the F3 workout or experience that dynamite in your lives, understanding really the power that you have within and the power you have on your lives. Guys, we appreciate you. And Tim, thank you again for being with us this whole episode. If you guys enjoyed this show, I would really appreciate you sharing this with a friend. If you got value from it, if you think they can get value from it as well, hit that subscribe button and continue to get our episodes each and every single week. Give us a like and also give us a rating. Let us know how we do. The only way we get better is when you tell us how we can get better, what you like and what you didn't like. And if you love the podcast so much, go ahead and help us out monetarily with our Patreon page as little as $1 a month. You can get extra audio from our guests like Tim and other guests that have been on the show. And we have some extra audio and content for you guys on there. As we always say at the end of the episode, guys, everybody wants the sunshine, but they don't want the rain, but you can't get the pleasure without a little pain. Let's grow.